So we've, we've kind of gotten to chapter 8 this morning. And, um, you know, what John has been able to do in this, this um, vision is, is there's been two different times now where he's received the vision and then God stops and lets him kind of take a breath. <gasps> okay, God, I see what you're doing. It's hard for me to look at what you're doing. But I also see, God, that you, you are preserving your church, right? Not by sucking them out of this world and, and taking them away from the tribulation, no. But you're preserving your church through this gift of faith that allows people to go through very tough, hard things that are going to happen in our world. And they are happening because God orchestrates it, right? And yet I'm able to see what he's doing. So two different times God has done that. He said, John, just take a deep breath. Look and let me show you what I've done with my church. I have given it this gift of faith. Um, so we've just finished uh, chapter 7 and the sealing, the sealing up of the 144,000. And remember what we're talking about with that is you've got the, the church that has received the, the, the sign of ownership uh, of God. And what God says, I, I am in and at work in my people. Now we're ready to move on to, to chapter 8. Notice we, we took that breather in between the 6th and the 7th seal. All right? So, in other words, John got six seals opened and went, whoa. And God said, breathe. Now let's go ahead in chapter 8 and open up the 7th seal. Now, before the seventh seal is open, something significant happens. I, and I, I really like these words. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay. Um, this is significant to me for a couple of reasons. When you, when you look historically at, at the whole of what silence means in the Bible, there are different scenes where silence is called for and in each one of them it means more than just this Shh. it means more than that okay and I want to show you a couple of passages that I think signify what is meant here <clears throat> when John looks and all of a sudden everything in heaven just gets shh, quiet and there's a half hour period. It's not a literal half hour period, right? It's a, it's a portion of an hour. So it means that there's a, there's a period of time during which everyone and everything in heaven is concentrated and looking at God who is getting ready to act. Every time there's a silencing, it means, guess what? God is getting ready to act again, all right? So a couple of cross-reference scriptures that are... are worth looking at. One is in Exodus chapter 14, and you'll, you'll find this scene to be pretty familiar to you. So let's just flip over to it. Exodus 14, and we're looking at um, verses 10 to 14. It's familiar to you. There, this, is, this is Moses, who with the people of Israel are getting ready to cross over the Red Sea. So, in other words, here, here we are, and um, we've got this great sea in front of us. We've come out of Egypt. We're all standing with, with our goods. No weapons, no ability to defend ourselves. 
we can hear the chariots, right, coming after us. Here, come, here comes Pharaoh and his army. And everybody is all of a sudden afraid. Everybody is like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What do we do? Here, here comes the army. And remember what God says to them as they get ready to cross over the Red Sea. Verse, go to verse number 10. It says, when, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, shaken in their boots. Okay. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They questioned God. Okay. I think that's important because the, this sense of silence is, is meant to say something more than just, Shh. You're afraid. You will be afraid. You live in the tribulation. People go, what's going to happen to me? And God says, shh. That's what the people are doing. They're fearing. They're shaking. They're doubting God. God, look what you've done now. You took us out. We had it good in Egypt. We ate leeks and onions and cucumbers, all of which I hate. I'm not living in Egypt, all right? <laughs> I'd be the one person in the crowd going, let's go. <laughs> what have you done, God? You're, you're going to kill us now here. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? They're, they're fearing. Look what they say. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Even before they left Egypt, they doubted God, didn't they? When Moses said, let's go, even after the, the plagues, after the killing of the unborn, after Pharaoh said, I release you, the people said, yeah, but, 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 but he's going to come after us. We know that, Pharaoh. Isn't this what we said? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. There's the one guy in this whole crowd of two million people shaken into the boots with the chariots coming for him. There's one guy who says what? Shh, silence. Now, here's the word. You'll see it. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and all you have to be is silent. I love that because that is what is happening as John gets ready to hear the seventh seal crack open is everything and everyone in heaven goes, shh, God is getting ready to act. And for us here living during the, the period of the tribulation, as we hear the seventh seal crack open and we see what happens, a part of us is going to be like the folks standing on the shore of the Red Sea. We get afraid. We shake. We say, what are we going to do? We say, God, you've abandoned us. Why, why would you let all these things happen? God says, shh. I am acting. Rest in me. Stand confident in my presence and stand confident in my promise. Now, one of my favorite psalms says the same thing. It just reiterates what it means to live in a way that allows you when, when hard stuff is coming to just be silent, to know that God will act, all right? So let's look at this one, Psalm 46. 
This is David's psalm. It's not a long psalm. Just kind of listen to it and listen to it with different ears today. Okay? When David wrote this psalm, he asked the choir master, who, you remember the sons of Korah were the temple um, choir, to take it and to turn it into a song that would be used in the temple over and over and over. And uh, when you look at the, they call it the superscription, the writing over the top of the psalm, it says, to the choir master, the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Alamoth is a tune for a song. And so this is a song that David would commission to be sung by the, the followers of God in the temple on a regular basis. And it had meaning for them then, but listen to it differently today. It's a psalm that I believe in every way points to the very end of time. Listen to it. Here's what David says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Will, will a day come when the earth will give way, when the mountains will crumble into the sea? Absolutely. Last day. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. Why? Because we know something. Look at verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This whole world will crumble, but what will it be replaced with? The city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. David already is, through this psalm in an inspired way, pointing forward to the new earth. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. Now, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of the hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. Now look at these words in verse 10. If you don't have them underlined in your Bible yet, make sure you do. Because they're some of the most beautiful words in the scriptures. Be still. Shh. Silent. And know that I am God. Um, there was a day in my life that those words really became very real for me. Um, we were moving. We, uh, as When you go through seminary, you get, you get a year of internship. And um, so Ann and I had gotten this, this uh, call to serve as a vicar at uh, Calvary Lutheran Church in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, so we, you know, we got the moving truck ready, and we had some friends that were helping us move. And everything that can go wrong in a move started to go wrong in that move. We're driving the truck, and my buddy gets sick. And we've got to pull over like 10 times so he can get sick. I'm thinking, this is not good. We finally get into Kansas City, and we get into this area of Kansas City that you don't want your truck to break down in, because your truck will not be there if it breaks down, right? And I'm, I'm holding on the wheels. I'm telling Ann, pray, 
just pray, get us through this section. Anne's crying, what have you brought me to? I'm like, oh, great, you know. <laughs> so we finally get to this house, and it's dark, and it's locked up, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, I don't have a key, I'm not sure how we're going to get in. And like, oh! My friend's like, meh, ah, meh. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> so I go around to the back of the house, and this door's open. I'm like, oh, the house is wide open. Anne's like, ah! I'm like, yeah, you're going to live here. And uh, oh my goodness. So we finally get in there and we're exhausted. Everybody kind of flops down. And I'm thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to just by sheer energy, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start moving stuff into the house. I just laid down on the couch and I looked up and I'm not making this up. There was a banner on the wall. You know what it said? Be still. And know that I am God. And it was so significant for me. I just, all of a sudden I went, oh yeah. I'm all caught up in my little world and my little deal here. And you know what God is saying to me? Shh. I got this. I have you. And I really believe that there's that sense here in the, in the revelation where where John looks, before we open up this seventh seal, it's not going to be good. It ain't going to be pretty. So guess what? Shh. Rest in me. Know that when I open up this seal, it's me. I'm acting, and I am acting in a way for the good of the earth and those who do not know me. So just be still in me. Trust me. All right? And I just love it that, that uh, God inserts this moment of stillness into, uh, into this vision where John is getting ready to, to allow us now to open up that seventh seal. Just be silent in God. Trust in him. And that silence then marks this half hour period of time in heaven. And now we're ready to crack it open. Go back to the Revelation verse 2. He says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And seven trumpets were given to them. Okay. It's kind of interesting the way that he says that, isn't it? Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. All right, it's kind of new information to us. Uh, as we've gone through the revelation, we see, we get little snapshots of what's going on in heaven. We've seen the, the um, uh, seraphim. We've seen the cherubim. Now, now you're seeing these angels who apparently, it says, they, they stand before God. Who are they? All right? So in the Bible, there are two angels that are named as what we would call archangels. Um, when you look at angelology in the scriptures, there are different things that different angels do. And uh, archangels seem to be those who carry out God's uh, closest missions. Um, they're never named in the scriptures, but... It's, it's kind of interesting, intertestamentally, during that period of time uh, at, at the close of the Old Testament, prior to the coming of the baptizer and the announcement of Jesus' birth, that intertestamental period of time, you have some, some literature that rises up and becomes part of what is called the Apocrypha in the Bible, right? So Luther, when he translated the scriptures, translated 66 books, the same 66 that you have in your Bible. And additionally, he translated what are called the apocryphal books or the deutero 
canonical books, the second canon books. Luther would say, I'm going to publish those and I'm going to put them in your Bible because I believe that they add some historical information that's helpful, but don't build your theology on these books. Don't build your theology on them. Learn from them, extract some useful historical information, but do not build your theology on them. They're not attested to by the whole of the church as wholly reliable, right? So when you go to a Catholic church or a Catholic bookstore and you buy a Bible, it contains those apocryphal books, right? One of those apocryphal books is called First Enoch, all right? And it's interesting that when you look at that book, uh, it does name additional archangels. And I don't know if you ever heard this before or not, but um, the names of the angels I put up for you, just, just, uh, just so you have them if you're curious, uh, he names them Suriel, Raphael, Raguel, Sakriel, Gabriel, and Michael. All of them in with the letters E-L, meaning we belong to El, God, Elohim. And uh, so each of them has a, a separate meaning. We don't build our theology on that. We don't say, yep, that's the names of the, you know, the, uh, the angels. Um, but we would say that it's kind of interesting intertestamentally that the, the Jews spent a lot of time thinking about what roles the angels played in their work in heaven. So what John is saying to us, as I saw them, I saw the seven archangels standing before God, the ones that stand before him, all of them received trumpets, right? And then another angel came. This angel is not given a trumpet, but it carries with it a censer, a golden censer, okay? And it says he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, okay? Um, I don't know if you all have ever been to either High Mass or a Greek Orthodox Church or St. Louis Seminary for worship. But uh, quite often you'll see a censer used with incense in it. Um, the Greek Orthodox, when any of you ever been to an Orthodox service? Okay. Yeah, you'll see it. They'll come in just swinging that censer so you've got incense kind of going out like this. Um, same thing in a, in a Catholic service, high mass, right? They're just swinging that thing. And then um, we have one of his relatives here in our church. One of my favorite professors is Horace Hummel. And uh, Horace Hummel, he uh, happened to like incense. So whenever he would preach in our chapel, he would come in swinging that censer, swinging that incense, just like that. And um, if you, do you like incense? You know, I, I still remember when I, when I was uh, like a sophomore in high school, I went to visit Concordia uh, in, in, in Austin. Uh, you know, they did the big picture, come, come, come go to Concordia in Austin. I still remember I went with, with my parents. We went to visit it. And the first room, room we went into was a dormitory where these people had replaced their, their door with beads. And they were burning incense. And my dad goes, they're smoking dope. And he walks out. <laughs> Some scenes will never leave your mind, you know. He goes, you're not going to this school. 
and I didn't go to that school. They shipped me to Michigan to keep me away from that stuff. I'm not a big incense guy. Some people like it. Horace did. He'd be like that. I always say we should have like an incense section and a non-incense section so we don't get that stuff on us. But the intention of it is really good. The, the, the sense of it is, and I think it's kind of interesting, so, so don't lose this, the, the angel is, is, is bearing this incense. The incense is meant to represent symbolically, right, the covering up of our sin. It also represents prayers that go up to God. Now, we've seen it one time before, right? All the martyrs that were under the altar of incense were crying out to God, how long before you will avenge our blood? And their prayers were going up to God like incense. Now, think about this. This, this is not just the martyrs. These are the prayers of all the saints, including you. Your prayers that go up before God today are, guess what? covered by Jesus Christ. Now, it just, it's just a little thing, but that's intriguing to me from this perspective. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when, when I pray, I kind of get in the way of my own prayers. I pray a lot of I, me prayers. You know why? Because I'm a human being. And sometimes I get into actually the, the practice of telling God not only what I want, but when I want it. You ever do that? Like, okay, God, are you listening? Get your pen out and your pad. This is what I need, and by the way, you're already late on it. So let's get, let's get it going right here, right? And you pray in such a way that you're just so focused on yourself, right? And you finally, you know, when you step back away from that, you go, oh, my goodness, what does God do with those prayers? Well, the beautiful thing is, even those prayers, those prayers that we pray that are coming out of our human yucky selves get covered up by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think there's moments of time when you read something like this that it causes you to just step back and to say, you know what? I, it's not good that I pray like that. I, I, I mean, I want to be able to just pray in a way that releases things to God, but it does so in, in a very honest way. Um, when I read prayer books, the ones I can't stand personally are the ones that are just kind of gibberish, like, they smell, they smell like perfume, if you know what I mean. They're like, I'm like, what kind of a frilly prayer is that thing, right? Um, the Celtic prayers, the old Celtic warriors, when you listen to and pray some of their prayers, they're phenomenal. They're very earthy. Luther's prayers are some of the best. You know why? They're honest. Luther would say things like this, Dear God, this morning I would like to just smack my neighbor in the nose. <laughs> he kept me up all night. He's rude. I don't really like him very much. And dear God, I'd really like to just clobber him. So dear God, here's what I'm going to pray for. Put all those feelings inside of me to death because they're wrong. They're not good, but they're how, how I feel. So, I, Lord, would you just put that to death and would you give me a new heart that loves my neighbor and that's patient with my neighbor and that knows that you love my neighbor and that cares for my neighbor because I don't have that heart right now. Those are Luther prayers. And what I like about them is they're honest. They come up before God and they speak it like it is. And, and I think that's what God calls us to do. Put it out there, but 
always come back with this request. God, change me. Don't leave me the same. I don't want this stuff to come up. Irregardless, these prayers go up before God. Our prayers, your prayers, my prayers today, covered by the incense, covered by Jesus Christ and received by him. Right? Now, this censor angel does something interesting. Verse number five, he takes this censer now, the, the incense has gone up, and he takes it over to the altar, and he fills it up with fire. Now imagine being John and watching this happening, because you, you know, I mean, you, if you think of this altar, this altar has this gigantic bowl on it that's fire, right? And you're throwing this incense into it. And so now this angel goes and just takes this censer and captures fire in it. And uh, for a moment, John has to step back and go, whoa, what are you going to do with that? And the angel flings it down to the earth, right? And you find yourself going, well, why would you do that? Why would you fling this fire down upon earth? Well, remember what fire is. Remember that fire always is something that does what? It purifies. The purpose of fire is purification. And so here's a God who is receiving the prayers of mankind covered by Jesus Christ, listening to those under the altar saying, how long, God, before you will avenge me? God goes, and the fire comes down to the earth. It's signifying, I, God, am at work seeking to purify my world and my people. I want to make them right. Now, don't miss this. When that fire, bam, hits the earth, it triggers something. And it says, now on the earth, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Now don't miss that symbolism. You've heard it before. Go back into the Old Testament and find it. Where is it? Where have you heard those words? Where is there lightning and rumbling and an earthquake? Guess where? Mount Sinai. And is that intentional? Yes, it is. What happens on Mount Sinai? You receive the law of God, right? The commandments of God. The word of life comes to Moses. Okay? And so what happens is, as the word of life is received by Moses, lightning and thunder and peals and earthquake take place. Well, put these two things together. How do I purify you? I make you line up with what? The word of life. And so the purpose of throwing that fire down on the earth is to signify I'm getting ready to do some things that do what? That bring people into a faith relationship with me because the only, only way we live out that word of life is through the spirit within us. It's through Jesus Christ within us. And so what God is saying is, I'm getting ready to do some things that are going to be hard. You're going to watch them. You're going to say to yourself, whoa, God, why are you doing that? Well, I'll tell you why I'm doing that. Because I'm bringing people into a faith relationship with me. That's what I'm seeking to do, to purify this world. Now, each of the seven angels takes his trumpet. So it's kind of interesting, this, you know, you have the sixth seal, the seventh seal when it breaks open actually begins now a new cycle that we're going to watch take place where there are going to be seven trumpets blown. 
seven seals, seven trumpets. Okay? Now the seven angels, it says, verse 6, who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Each one of them gets positioned, ready to go. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Okay? So is this good? No. All right? This is God. Boom. Threw the fire down. I'm getting ready to purify. Go ahead. Blow that first trumpet. The first trumpet comes. We have hail mixed with blood, mixed with fire. God says, I'm burning up the natural resources of the earth. What are you doing, God? Purifying. Calling people back to me. Now, two things I want you to notice here. The first thing is, all of seven of these trumpets, each time one blows, it's going to take us back to a time in history where similar things happened, namely Egypt and the plagues. Has there been hail mixed with fire and blood before? Yes. Where? Egypt. One of God's plagues. Each of the seven trumpets will remind us of those plagues. Now, if you're back in Egypt and you think about what, what was the purpose of those plagues, the purpose of those plagues was to do two things, right? To call people back to faith in God, right? A lot of people say, well, why, 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 why these plagues? And most people get it wrong. They'll say to me, you know, God, God took these ten plagues and he's smacking Egypt. I'm going to smack Egypt because Egypt's bad. I'm like, the ten plagues weren't for Egypt. I mean, that's a secondary use of them was to cause Pharaoh, right, to let the people go. But God didn't need ten plagues for that. God could have just said, okay, Pharaoh, let my people go. Done. The ten plagues were for who? For Israel. Why? Because they stopped believing in God. They stopped trusting in him. And with each of the plagues, God was saying what? Trust me. Come back to me. Put your faith in me. Believe in me. Every time he did that. So when God is, God is enacting uh, these trumpet um, catastrophes upon the world and upon people, what is he doing? Come to me. Come back to me. He's calling both the apostates, I believe, and I really get serious about this. I think in the church of Jesus Christ today, we got a mess going on. We have a horrible mess going on. First of all, we got so many church bodies out there that have, have just dumped the word of God and become so worldly that they, they've, lo they've lost the entire sense of what it means to follow him. They've just lost it. And it just fires me up. I mean, I was listening to a list of the church bodies left on planet Earth that actually are going to stand up and say, we don't, we don't agree with what's going on in our, our country today. It's a short list. So much of the church world has said, oh, you know, we've got to get with the times, we've got to change with the times, we've got to be loving people. I'm like, yeah, you've got to be loving people. Like if I were a doctor and some guy came to me and said, I have cancer and I need treatment. I said to him, oh, I love you so much. You know, I'm not going to cut that out. I mean, I don't want to hurt you. It hurt if I had to do surgery. That would be painful. So I'm just going to leave the cancer and you can die. Would that be loving? No. Somebody comes to me and they got cancer and they go, is it going to hurt if I cut that out? Yes, it's going to hurt. If I take chemotherapy, will it be fun? No, <laughs> it will not be fun. 
But we're going to do it because we're going to attack the cancer because if we don't, it's going to kill you. And I, I think one of the worst things that the church of Jesus Christ is to take people who are stuck in sin and say, you're fine. You're good. good to go. We love you. We don't want to hurt your feeling. You're good. You're, you're fine to go. No, that's not loving. That's hateful. That's hateful, folks. And so I, I look at this and I think God, part of the purpose of, of God coming and doing what he's doing is to call the church back to himself, to say, listen, come back to me. It, you have to build your lives upon my word, my promises, right? Secondly, why is God doing this? To call those who are outside of the faith to come to him. All of the plagues were meant to say to Israel, come back to me. All of these catastrophes are meant to say to people, come to Jesus Christ. You cannot stop anything that God does. So watch what he's doing. And if it humbles you to your knees, good. That's his intention, is to bring you back uh, to him. So notice that first. Second thing I want you to notice is I want you to notice the number because it's significant. It says in verse number seven, a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now, why is that significant? Here, here's what I want you to notice. When we went through the six seals being broken, were there similar things happening? Was God doing some of these same things? Was he bringing destruction upon the natural resources of the earth? Yeah. So here's what I want you to put in your mind. The seven trumpets are not something new. They're a reiteration of what God's already told us he's going to do in the six seals. We're just going to go back through them again. But there's a difference. It's in the number. I'll show it to you. Go back and look at chapter 6, verse 8, and you'll see it. Remember we were opening up these seals? And God calls out to the last horse, the pale green horse, come. And its rider was death and Hades. And it says they were given authority over, what's the number there? A fourth of the earth, okay? So if I go through the six seals and what's happening is a fourth of the earth is being affected, what am I saying? I'm saying a, a significant portion of the earth is going to receive the effect of God coming and carrying out his curse against his own creation, a fourth of the earth. Now, when you get to the trumpets, guess what it is? Now it's a third of the earth. What's happening? Intensifying, right? And that's the picture that you want to see in the Revelation is you, you're going to see an intensification of what God is doing. As you move towards the end, it gets harder and harder and harder. It's like, God, it's like a parent who says to, says to our kids, we're like, listen, if you stick your hand in that cookie jar again, guess what? You're going to get a timeout. They're like, time out? That's worth a cookie. They eat the cookie. You know? Okay, now if you stick your hand in that jar again, you're going to get spanked. 
I'll try that. <laughs> Spanking's worth of cooking. You know, now if you put your thing, you know, now you're going to get a timeout, and you're going to lose all your privileges, and you're going to get a spanking. It intensifies, right? Well, God's not just like a parent trying to punish his children. That's not the picture. But the, but the picture is, it is going to intensify. I'm going to intensify what I'm doing on earth to do what? To break human beings' wills. Humans, we're so stubborn. I will not, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do it my way. God says, okay. Kaboom. Try this one on. And we go, whoa. Now, I, you know what? I can't fix that. I can't change that. So this first trumpet blow, what's significant to me is that it, it points to the intensification of what we've already seen happen in the six seals. We're reiterating that. Now God says it's more. More of the earth will be affected. Now go back to that trumpet. What does it mean? What is it, what's actually being affected uh, by this blowing of the trumpet? Well, the earth is being affected, right? And again, because all of this is meant to be symbolic, it's not a literal third of the earth that's burning up. It's not a literal third of the trees. But what it is, it is a significant portion of the natural resources on planet earth are being significantly affected by God, right? in a way that causes human beings to say, that's, that's a problem. You've created a problem for us. And you can't fix it with any human solution. And so when I look at, uh, when I look at this stuff, by the way, I used to do this. I, I had a, a friend of mine that worked for uh, State Farm. I hope none of you work for State Farm. And uh, he, you know, he'd come to Bible class, and from time to time I'd get my Bible out, and I'd say, do you guys have actuaries? He'd be like, yeah, we've got some really smart actuaries. I said, they can know math and all that stuff? I'm like, yeah, they, they figure all this stuff out. I said, do they know the Bible? He'd be like, no. I thought you might want to show them the Bible because uh, what you guys insure against, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And guess what? I don't know if you've noticed this, but just in my lifetime, the whole idea of disaster response has become an industry because there's so much of it going on around the world at any given time from earthquakes to forests that burn up to seas that get polluted that guess what we have to literally now be 24 hours a day all year round on the alert so we can send out help when the natural disasters occur and everybody looks at it and says does it seem like things are getting worse a uh, duh yeah, and they're going to get even worse. So if you work for State Farm, it's probably not a good thing. I mean, you get, uh, is, uh, get the actuaries to read this book, all right? Let's look at the second angel. Second angel blows his trumpet. I think this is interesting. Something, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships uh, were destroyed. One of my favorite <clears throat> places uh, that we stopped and visited when we were uh, out looking at where, where Paul did his, his ministry was the area that uh, was covered by fire and ash at the time of Vesuvius. You remember in 79 AD, <clears throat> in what is now called modern-day Naples, um, Vesuvius, the volcano, went off. And uh, it, it, it killed 
everybody living in that area, but it did so in a way that the ashes preserved their bodies and preserved the, the city almost intact. So it went uncovered for years, and then the archaeologists discovered it and unearthed it. And it's really eerie to go through. They, they've preserved uh, bodies of people under the ash where they're just all curled up and dead. Most likely, a lot of people just died. They couldn't breathe, right? I mean, the ash was that thick that it just killed them all. And... Um, so when you get this, you get kind of a, a symbolic imagery of that, that something like a great mountain of fire was cast into the sea, and now all the, the ships, the, 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 the merchandise, right, the industry of merchandise is disrupted, and the, the creatures of the sea are dying. And I look at this, and I think to myself, well, here's what God is doing, is he's disrupting man's desire for industry. We, we, in this period of time, you used shipping to get your goods from here to there, from there to here. And what God is doing is he is, he is disrupting that in a significant way. I, I'm of the opinion, and this is strictly an opinion, that, um, and, and I, again, don't, this is not in the Bible, but if somebody asked me, how would you disrupt, how would you disrupt the world today? Um, it would not be hard for me at all. It, it would take about three explosions in outer space to knock out the entirety of what you call the World Wide Web. And you want to talk about all of your 501c3s or all of your retirement accounts and all of this stuff. You know where all that is? It's in the cloud. And when that cloud goes kaboom, guess what you have the very next day? Total meltdown of the economy. Total meltdown of the economy. You have everybody going, what are we going to do? We don't know who has what, where is what. You've got human beings that are filled with what greed. They go, we've got to fix this problem. So when I look at this, I think to myself, not hard to disrupt the whole of how our world has become dependent upon industry today. And I look for a God to go someday, you know what? Let's do this. And now all of a sudden, let's see the ground you're standing on. Because I think most people are standing up on very shaky ground. We feel secure. Take all that away that fast. And all of a sudden, we're like, whoa, now what are we going to do? Guess what? Going to school the next day, that doesn't matter. Whatever you had planned the next day, that doesn't matter. All of a sudden, you got to fit. How are we going to figure this thing out, right? And guess what? You can't. That's the whole point of it. God says you can't. And that's the point of these trumpets is to do these works that seem so alien to God, but for the purpose of bringing people back to Him. Let's look at this last one, and then we'll close. Third angel blows his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. Now we're affecting a huge part of our life. We depend upon water to live. Most of our bodies are made up of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. 
wormwood, when you translate it into, into Greek, is uh, absinthos. We get our, our translation absinth from it. It's poison, right? And so when he says this star falls into the waters and disrupts it and poisons it, what he's saying is I'm going to affect even the whole of my natural water system. God created it. We depend upon it. We can't do anything about it. I think here in this region, we say things like, I hope it rains. God says, I control that, right? We, 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 people go through droughts. People go, well, where's the water? God says, I turn it off for a little while. And uh, God who says, I'm going to do something, says, I'm actually going to affect the water in such a way that it begins to kill people. Now imagine that. Drinking water that kills you. Awesome. Where did that come from? From God. Why? You can't fix it. You must rely upon me. You've got to get to a place in life where you, your faith allows you to say, it doesn't matter what happens to me. You've got to get to where St. Paul was when he said, guess what? To live for me is gain. But to die, <laughs> that's even better, right? Because I know where I will live forever. And it's not in this world. This world is passing away. And so I cannot wait for that new world. All my time in this world, however much is left of it, I'm giving my whole self to God to just be used up. Use me up until that last breath. I want to be used by you. Okay. Um, let's stop there, and we'll pick up with that next week. Lord God.